Renewal. I hope you love birds too. It is economical. It saves going to heaven. Emily Dickinson. I was drawn by the distinct scent of fresh water. It's such a fine, uplifting odor. Long enough in the desert, a man like other animals can learn to smell water," wrote the late Edward Abbey, American author and environmental activist, in Desert Solitaire. Far from a desert, across the railway tracks behind an industrial park, I found a misty, moody, monochrome fishing lake lined with rushes. A heron circled overhead, stately and assured. Black and white tufted ducks careened in to land with a water ski skid. Coots drifted over the smooth surface. They always draw a wry reminiscence from me, because a thousand lifetimes ago I studied the agonistic communication of coots for my university dissertation, whatever that means. But my heart had already clocked off from academia by then, and I was getting ready to hit the road. I'd requested to do my fieldwork in Africa, sniffing the opportunity to wangle an adventure out of a degree. But the professor was wise to my scheming, and I was unceremoniously packed off to sit by a chilly Edinburgh duck pond for weeks, much like the one I'd discovered today. I smiled at my youthful disappointment and turned away from the coots. Beyond the lake lay a river. From studying my map, I had hoped it might be the first swimmable span of water I'd found so far. One glance disabused me of that idea. The banks were sheer, dropping ten feet or more to low-tide mud banks and a swift current. No good for swimming, perhaps, but appealing to wildlife. Herons chattered and squabbled in a treetop heronry on the bank. They gather for three months in the spring to breed. And sometimes their large communes of nests are reused over many generations. Another heron was poised like a silent single sentinel on the riverbank, with its bayonet beak and stoically hunched shoulders atop knobbly stilt legs. Farther along the riverbank stood a hexagonal pillbox from the Second World War. Its thick concrete walls now wreathed in ivy and vines. It was still standing strong in the fog. Or I asked myself, was it mist? The difference, it turns out, is only in the eye of the beholder, for mist and clouds and fog are essentially the same thing, with the differences depending only upon where you are looking from. Mist and fog form when saturated air condenses into droplets that hang suspended in the air. Saturation happens more easily when temperatures are low, so the phenomenon is more likely when the air is both humid and cold. If you look up at a mountain top, it may seem to be shrouded in clouds, but hike up the mountainside and you'll find yourself entering a light mist. Keep on climbing into the heart of it, and at some point you'll lose visibility in the fog. Such ambiguity felt like excellent advice. I could see the industrial estate I was heading to as a trudge around warehouses and porter cabins, or I could consider it an adventure, exploring somewhere I'd never been before. I crossed impersonal expanses of concrete, past litter, razor fencing, and men in overalls with Eastern European accents. 
Yellow coltsfoot flowers grew in the gutters among the padlocked shipping containers and tattered office chairs positioned outside fire doors for cheeky fag breaks. I saw a shopping trolley upended in a stagnant pool of water rainbowed with oil and another one wedged overhead into the legs of a pylon. A fragment of public footpath survived, hemmed in by chain-link fencing and lined with brambles and beer cans. Someone had garlanded a scruffy hawthorn tree with strings of seashells, a rubber duck, the head of an action man figure and a traffic cone. I followed the path behind the warehouses, then crossed a railway line on one of those unguarded level crossings you occasionally find in quiet places. Other than a sign warning you to be careful, you're very much on your own. I like them as they feel exposed and trust you to make your own judgments. The eastern half of today's grid square was a deserted area of blonde reed beds. These are transitional habitats between water and land, waterlogged yet covered in vegetation and home to such elusive bird species as the bearded tit and the bittern. Plants have adopted to this wet habitat with modified stems called rhizomes, that spread horizontally and shoot up into tall reeds that help aerate the underwater roots. I thought about the reed beds in terms such as peaceful and uplifting, very dissimilar in tone from the industrial yards a few hundred metres away. The way environments affect your mood like this is linked to the notion of nature connectedness and our relationship with the natural world. By tuning into nature and then enjoying it and protecting it, nature connectedness helps individuals and society to build healthier and more sustainable relationships with the natural world. When Miles Richardson, Professor of Human Factors and Nature Connectedness, began a research blog, his first mission was to show that noting three good things in nature every day for a week could lead to a long-term increase in how connected you feel to nature. The same principle applies to the Wildlife Trust's annual 30 Days Wild Challenge. I felt confident that concentrating hard this year was helping me to forge some lasting habits too. Research has shown that it is how much you concentrate when outdoors that affects your well-being more than just the amount of time you spend standing out in the rain. It is common when considering the challenges of nature connectedness to bemoan our addiction to screens and the digital world. But I prefer to embrace technology and celebrate the challenge of geocaching treasure hunts such as Pokemon Go and apps such as 1000 Hours Outside for encouraging kids to get out and run through the woods. The various apps I was using to learn more about nature and my landscape this year were invaluable despite the irony of needing a phone to help me observe the world around me. Today's grid square was memorable for containing a rare error on my usually flawless Ordnance Survey map. A convenient footbridge across the river turned out to be some sort of chemical pipe. It was wrapped in barbed wire so I couldn't just trespass my way across the river on it. I had to cycle downstream for several miles to the nearest bridge. Arriving on the far bank of the river, at last, I found a modern sort of farm. A solar farm. The gleaming expanse of blue-black silicon panels was spread over a few hundred square metres, 
facing south and angled optimistically towards a sun still well hidden by mist. Solar energy is important for addressing the climate crisis as it is limitless, free and clean. Cover just a quarter of the Sahara Desert in solar panels, hypothetically, and you could meet the entire world's energy needs. Although the first solar panel was invented in 1883, technology capable of harnessing significant amounts of energy only took off from the 1950s. Until recently, it was too expensive for mainstream adoption. But the cost per watt has plummeted since 2010, and solar energy now plays a prominent role in the world's transition from fossil fuels. Away from the solar farm, bushes and saplings were rewilding an area that had once been covered by a Victorian brick factory. Young plants were bursting into life wherever I looked. Two centuries ago, this spot had been filled with railway lines, kilns, brick-drying sheds, warehouses, wharves, vast walls of stone, and chimneys belching smoke. It would have been a whirlwind of industry noise and money-making. Yet almost nothing remained. That thriving enterprise was long gone, like an English Ozymandias. Nature had returned in its place, making this square feel like the wildest I'd visited so far. Among all the things I've worried about in the dark first half of this year, a beam of sunshine that warmed my heart was how reliably nature bounces back. In the gloom of winter, I had perhaps half wanted to be disillusioned by my map. Maybe it was my pessimism at consigning myself to 12 months on a small area I didn't much like. But I'd actually really enjoyed the wildness of some of the places I'd found, and now spring was infusing me with its exuberant enthusiasm. That this was all reclaimed from industry cheered me even more. If we don't wreck things too much, habitats do recover, and we can make environments wild and wonderful again. That's no consolation, sadly, for the thousands of species disappearing annually, thousands of times faster than the natural extinction rate. Experts argue over how many species there actually are, and whether 0.01 or 0.1% of them go extinct annually. Either way, we're destroying between 10,000 and 100,000 species every year. While 99% of all organisms that have ever lived have already died out, the fact that we are responsible right now for the sixth mass extinction event in history means I don't feel mollified that it is part of the natural order of things. I'm ashamed that more than half of British species have declined in my lifetime. We have lost so much. Although, as naturalist Chris Packham pointed out in his passionate People's Manifesto for Wildlife, lost means inadvertently misplaced. No, our wildlife has been killed, starved, poisoned, ploughed up or concreted over. This happens not because we are evil, but because we look on and do nothing. But still, despite everything, nature's potential for recovery is tremendous once humans get out of the way. For example, during the Covid lockdowns, civets returned to once busy streets in India, deer roamed the roads in Japan and monkeys enjoyed a splash in a swimming pool in Mumbai. 
the German Greenbelt is a nature reserve running the length of the country down the old fortified Iron Curtain. And Chernobyl, off limits to humans for decades, has become a haven for wildlife, with lynx, bison and deer roaming through regenerated forests. Ecosystems are at their most successful and stable when there are populations of large, native, keystone species such as these holding everything together. Keystone species are not always large mammals, though. Sturgeon, dung beetles and bog moss all make a tremendous impact on their habitats, and spawning salmon nourish trees on riverbanks as their decaying bodies provide lots of nitrogen. Bring back these ecological engineers and degraded habitats spring back to life through a trophic cascade effect. Reintroductions of keystone species can be controversial though, such as the bison in Bleen Woods near Canterbury and beavers across Britain. The anxiety is another example of shifting baseline syndrome, as we think that the nature of our childhood was normal without these species despite evidence that animals such as beavers have so many positive effects, such as improving tree growth, increasing biodiversity and stabilising riverbanks. In Three Against the Wilderness, Eric Collier recounts how an elderly First Nations lady taught him that returning beavers to his valley in British Columbia would return to a total recovery of the area. Until white man come, she said, Injun just kill beaver now and then, suppose he want meat or skin for blanket. And then, always the creek is full of beaver. Suppose once again the creek full of beavers, maybe trout come back, and ducks and geese come back too, and big marshes be full of muskrats again, all same when me little girl. If reintroducing species to restore habitats feels a bit radical, I also like the simple notion of doing nothing for nature. Just stepping back and leaving wild spaces in gardens, verges and unneeded farmland allows nature to return. This is what the Nepp estate in West Sussex did on its way to becoming England's most famous rewilding project, allowing three and a half thousand acres of unprofitable farmland to return to the wild. Nepp was a failing farm, stripped of biodiversity, inefficient and struggling. Today, it is home to populations of rare nightingales, purple emperor butterflies and turtle doves, as well as being a thriving success story for nature tourism. The estate has wildlife safaris and places to stay and sells wild-range meat from the free-roaming herds of old English longhorn cattle, Tamworth pigs and red and fallow deer whose browsing behaviour helps create new habitats for wildlife. Seeing before and after photos of rewilded sites such as Nep or Carrifran in the Borders, Dundregan in the Highlands and Ennerdale in Cumbria always fills me with hope. I pushed through undergrowth to reach a reservoir that had been fenced off by the water company. It seemed I was not the only person sorry to be denied access, for a fence panel had been pushed over and a path led down through the trees to the shore. If you ignored the bottles of cheap imported vodka and discarded fishing tackle, then it was a beautiful spot, especially now the sun had come out. 
the still water glimmered and reflected the blue sky. I'd been practicing this dichotomy of control mindset a lot during my wanderings across the map, trying to have this serenity to accept the things I could not change, the courage to change the things I could, and the wisdom to know the difference. In this case, it involved me ignoring the litter, enjoying the view, and appreciating having a lake to myself on a sunny day with clean water and the merry sound of birdsong. I stripped off and waded in for my first wild swim of the year. It was, in equal parts, nippy and invigorating. When I departed, I filled my rucksack with litter from the lakeshore to leave a positive impact on where I had been, doing my bit for the cause of opening up the countryside by treating it responsibly. There might be little wilderness on this map of mine, but there was plenty of wildness if you looked for it. A messy, energising sense of the living world being all around us and pushing hard to make itself felt.